Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the managing director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. We're very excited today to welcome you to the latest episode in our series of SALT Talks about the digital asset space uh, with two fantastic panelists who have uh, started and, and ran major companies within that industry. Our panelists today are Meltem Demirers and Tegan Klein. Uh, Meltem is the Chief Strategy Officer of CoinShares, a digital asset investment firm that manages about $4 billion in assets on behalf of a global client base and serves as a trusted partner to investors and entrepreneurs navigating the digital asset ecosystem. Prior to joining CoinShares, Meltem helped build and grow the Digital Currency Group, raising capital from the world's largest corporations and managing a portfolio of 120 companies and four subsidiaries. Before she was bitten by the Bitcoin bug, Meltem worked in the oil and gas industry in trading, uh, corporate, treasury, and M&A roles. Uh, Tegan Klein is the co-founder and business leader of Edge and Node, which is the organization behind the Graph Protocol, which is an indexing and query protocol making applications on the blockchain possible. Uh, Tegan helps leaders and innovators connect more deeply with stakeholders across the blockchain ecosystem. She's the former inter international business development manager and OXT relations lead uh, for ORCID an ACE16Z and Sequoia-backed blockchain company that created tools and protocols for users to obtain digital freedom and an open and accessible internet. Tegan successfully helped to launch ORCID at a $400 million valuation on Coinbase. Hosting today's talk is yours truly, uh, John Darcy. Again, I'm the Managing Director of SALT, as well as a Director of Business Development at Skybridge, which is a global alternative investment firm. And the way we like to start out most of these talks, uh, Meltem and Tegan, is how did you get bit by that Bitcoin or that digital asset bug? We'll start with you, Meltem, but how did you go from working in oil and gas to deciding uh, that this whole decentralized internet, crypto, Bitcoin thing uh, was what you wanted to be involved in? Hi, John. It's a delight to be here. Thanks for having me um, and hosting this conversation. Uh, I like to call this story the Bitcoin origin story. You know, um, different cultures and different communities have different rituals. And definitely the predominant ritual in our industry is everyone has their own crypto origin story. So um, this is a fun one. And I'm sure you, now that you're a part of the crypto community, have told your story many times. Uh, Tegan, I know she and I are good friends and I've heard her story many times. So I'll share mine very briefly. Um, I was spent my early career working in the energy industry. And at the time that I started to get into Bitcoin, I worked in corporate treasury at ExxonMobil at the Death Star in Irving, Texas. These were the days of Rex Tillerson when ExxonMobil at $400 billion market cap was the largest company in the world. Uh, so it's a very different time. It's hard to believe this was only seven years ago, <laughs> a very different world. And as I was looking around, um, you know, the world was changing very quickly. Um, the things that accrued value were no longer companies that produced physical things. There were companies that operated in the digital realm, and it really didn't take a crystal ball to see the direction in, in which the world was headed. 
And then on top of that, you know, I'd spent so much of my time in legacy capital markets and market microstructure in legacy capital markets is just so fundamentally broken. Um, I started my career trading physical ethanol and methanol through the financial crisis with two phones strapped to my ear, right? Buying and shipping distressed cargoes, buying LOCs, et cetera. Then I started trading carbon again, you know, highly phone and voice driven. And as I started to learn more about Bitcoin, interact with Bitcoin, it was just so obvious to me that what the internet had done for information and communication, cryptocurrencies, and in particular, Bitcoin was going to do for value. And um, I had never really taken a risk in my life up to that point, you know, as a good girl. Went that doesn't sound like you, Melton. I know what happened to me. Um, and along the way, I was like, you know what, I'm going to take a risk and do something totally crazy. If it doesn't work out, you know, at least I'll get to work with some of the most interesting, most intellectually sort of engaged people I've, I've ever met. And um, that was seven years ago. And the rest is history. I've never had more fun. I've never been more scared, more freaked out. Um, but look, I think if you are an intellectually curious person, and you look at what's happening around you, it's just it's not a question of if, but a question of when. And I think we've already hit that inflection point. So um, I am delighted that I'm in this industry versus the energy industry. <laughs> when March of last year hit, you know, and um, the the oil trade went negative. I think we're at negative forty dollars a barrel. It's like this was the right choice. I think. <laughs> yeah, I was I was calling up family and friends and trying to figure out if there was anywhere we could store barrels of oil uh, so, right? so we could take delivery. But I wasn't I able to pull it together. I think there's a journalist who actually did that. There's a journalist a few years ago who actually took physical delivery of a of an oil contract. I don't recommend it. I think no, that like the EPA I read will probably that. come to your house. <laughs> yeah, I read that one, and it didn't sound as glamorous as maybe I, I thought it would be at the time. But uh, I have a few follow up questions on your origin story. But before we get into that, I'm going to ask Tegan the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for hosting. Really, really grateful to be here and next to Meltem, a good friend, and also I think one of the greatest Bitcoin advocates of our time. Um, so it's really wonderful to be here. But yes, yeah, so my origin story, I was in finance, I was on the sales and trading floor in fixed income, and I learned about um, Ethereum. And for me, Ethereum was really when it kind of captivated my mind and attention. I had learned about Bitcoin in 2011, but still kind of went into a traditional Wall Street route. Um, but when I learned about Ethereum about four and a half years ago, I really saw the opportunity to kind of create a new financial system outside of the one that existed and kind of compete with that financial system. Um, and so I started kind of trading my own book while at Barclays and then moved over to uh, the distributed VTPN you mentioned. And then the graph to really make sure that um, the blockchain becomes kind of the future of the internet. So what was, what was it about Ethereum uh, that intrigued you? You know, a lot of people talk about Bitcoin as sort of their gateway drug into the digital asset, decentralized finance world. What was it about Ethereum that gave you that sort of eureka moment? For me, you know, Bitcoin revolutionized finance where Ethereum kind of revolutionizes the internet and kind of Bitcoin, Ethereum explodes it into every asset class as opposed to just money and finance. And for me, that's really what clicked. Um, but a lot of the brilliant software engineers that I know and, and Meltem saw Bitcoin a lot sooner than I did. Very cool. So Melton, you talked about how you felt scared, you, know, you felt butterflies when you left the traditional finance industry and jumped into crypto. And it's been obviously fits and starts uh, in terms of how Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin has rallied in, in terms of uh, mainstream adoption and, and understanding and acceptance of decentralized finance. When did you start to think to yourself, wow, this actually is going to be something real uh, and the sort of no turning back, we've crossed the Rubicon? Yeah, I think it's the first time I sent a Bitcoin transaction. 
And I think, um, you, you know, I, I grew up in Europe. I've lived in the United States for the last 20 years now, um, but my family's from rural Turkey. And so um, for me, the aha moment was when I sent a Bitcoin transaction, I think it was, you know, a Sunday night at midnight. Um, and all I had to do was download a Bitcoin wallet, which is just a, a software client. And all I needed was a 32 character string, right? A, a public address. And I could send value. I had never had that experience before. Today, when I want to send money, you know, I bank with JPMorgan Chase. I have to go to Chase Bank Branch. I recently had an incident where I had to bring two forms of ID and I wasn't even allowed to send my <laughs> own money by my own bank. Um, so this idea that 24-7, 365, there is this permissionless open network that allows anyone with an internet connection and a compatible software client and a public wallet address to send value to anyone, anywhere. You don't need to know who they are. You don't need to know anything about them. Um, to me, it was just so obvious in that moment that this is the direction things were headed. And look, I think there's a really big second narrative that's unfolding here. We live in an age and time where our civil liberties are being eroded on a daily basis, right? Surveillance capitalism is the predominant business model of the internet. And I think many of us are becoming aware of the perils of, of these business models, that there is no alternative. And so I think what's been introduced by Bitcoin and then extended by other protocols like Ethereum um, and, and other platforms that are being built in sort of this decentralized open source permissionless manner is in a world where governments, right, vie for control and want to dictate every aspect of our lives, Bitcoin is sort of this bastion of freedom and it has freedom of access, freedom of opportunity. Anyone can build anything on top of the Bitcoin network. Now, businesses that interact with Bitcoin are going to be regulated based on the jurisdictions in which they operate and the facts of, of what their business does, which, you know, we're subject to a whole lot of regulation. We're regulated more tightly than a bank at this point, I think. But um, at the end of the day, you know, if you look at um, what's happening around our world, 70% of the world's population lives under totalitarian regimes. Right. It's to me, right, Bitcoin is like the next step in, in sort of the evolution of what it means to have freedom of expression and financial censorship is the predominant form of censorship, right? If we look at economic sanctions, if we look at the inability people have to invest and, and allocate their capital the way they want or even move their capital around and how sort of um, money operates in these tiny networks that are still defined by physical borders. Nothing in our life is defined by physical borders anymore, right? We're all in three different locations on a video chat having conversation. How preposterous is it that our money is still constrained by physical borders that were dreamed up like three millennia ago? It's completely wild to me. And um, so, yeah, as I started interacting with Bitcoin, I was like, this is I'm an avid reader of sci-fi. I'm a huge nerd. So I was like, this is the future of what money should look like. And once we do that, the types of economic activity we'll be able to enable, not just human to human, but machine to machine payments as we start to move towards an economy where we have more automation and you know, non-human entities that exist and operate. It's just very interesting. And I think it opens your mind to all of the possibilities and just unleashes a tremendous amount of creative potential. Yeah, I think uh, in terms of mainstream uh, understanding and adoption of Bitcoin, I think honestly, things like NBA top shots have really cut through to the average American or, or person around the world in terms of understanding if a physical piece of cardboard with a, a rookie card of Michael Jordan on it has value, why wouldn't a digital rendering of the same type of thing have value? You're seeing digital art uh, and things go for 
what most people would perceive as astronomical uh, values, but I think it just reinforces the shift to, to digital money. Uh, but Tegan, I want to build on some of what Meltem just said in terms of regulatory issues, right? Uh, you know, the decentralized finance world, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all these other protocols, they are disintermediating the world and they are, they're definitely threatening the, the autocratic power, not just of, you know, nations that are fully autocratic, but even countries that uh, monitor uh, people's activity related to money and, and technology. What type of threat do you perceive as regulation, whether it be in the United States or abroad in terms of its long-term threat to decentralized finance, Bitcoin, and the whole ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a really great question. So, you know, the most powerful thing about Bitcoin to me is that there's no government, there's no individual, there's no corporation in the middle of that. You, know, you can send a transaction directly, and that does threaten a lot of individuals' power. Um, if you look at Bitcoin, it's kind of competition with central banks, and central banks have never before had competition. And when we see the Fed print $9 trillion in just one year, 2020 alone, which is over 22% of the total circulating supply, which is, you know, no individual should have that kind of power. Um, we will likely see more regulate, regulations come in um, and try to kind of threaten that power. And we've already kind of seen some of that with um, the limitations on, on wallets and, and things like that. Um, but I do think that a lot of the regulations that are coming um, hopefully will kind of continue to be fair and, um, and yeah, and so so we'll see kind of the, the powers that be, but hopefully more folks kind of get in and, and um, contribute to this decentralized ecosystem and, and um, it makes, you know, central banks um, more favorable to individuals. Yeah. And Meltem, in terms of the macro environment, you know, you and I were talking before we went live here about how much of this rise Our, in Bitcoin. We did Say a pre-show. We did a pre-show. Yeah, in the, the pre-show, show, the, the VIP, show. the VIP green room. Uh, where we were loitering before the show, uh, where we talk about the super secret stuff that, you know, it's like sort of the Bitcoin Illuminati. But, Very secret. Um, Very secret. How much How much of this recent boom in the prices of, you know, crypto assets or digital assets, Bitcoin being the poster child, but also Ethereum and others, how much of it is driven by the macro environment? So the money printing that Tegan yeah. just mentioned, we created over 20%, I think the number is 22% of, of all dollars in circulation were created in 2020. How much of that accelerated uh, the rise of Bitcoin or do you think it was inevitable just based on the strength of, of uh, the, the technology that underlies Bitcoin? Yeah, so, so I want to take a moment and sort of separate the two narratives. I think the macro narrative um, and attributing Bitcoin's success and the crypto sector's overall success to this money printer go burr narrative, if I may use that God level meme, um, is is very popular. But look at the end of the day, right? In in March of 2020, when Jay Powell, you know, did money printer go burr? Um, and by the way, it's very interesting that for the first time in modern history, we had a meme enter sort of the popular lexicon that alluded to fiscal and monetary policy. I mean, I can't tell you, I had conversations with people who don't know anything about fiscal and monetary policy, about the impact of money printing on their savings and their financial well-being. And then I think what you really saw is um, people flocked to assets that would appreciate value in general, right? So the momentum that we've seen and the just the frenzy we've seen for investable assets has really been consistent across the board. We saw rotation out of core equities into tech, right? The three most popular trades in 2020 were long tech, 
which continues to be the trade, and that's both in private capital markets and public capital markets, as we've seen, you know, by the crazy outperformance of IPOs. Tesla, I think, is the poster child for this, right? Um, we've seen this in private capital markets where companies are raising rounds at astronomical valuations pre-product. And the types of people I'm competing with in venture deals, it used to be other VC firms. Now it's family offices, PE firms, publicly listed companies, sovereign wealth funds investing directly. So the cohort of people investing in, in tech has just shifted monumentally. Second most popular trade was short dollar, right? And there are a number of different ways you can short dollar. But I think generally, you know, the sell-off we saw across um, bonds and treasuries was indicative of that. And then the fact that the U.S. now owns, you know, an astronomical amount of the treasuries and notes in circulation is another symptom of that. Overall, reduced foreign ownership of dollar-denominated assets, I think, is another symptom of that. And then the last trade was long crypto, right? And um, the long crypto trade, I think, is interesting because I don't think it's people necessarily saying, wait a minute, I believe Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies are going to be the thing that defines the future. It's really people saying, I need somewhere to put my money that isn't the dollar because asset inflation isn't happening in CPI. I know we're looking at, you know, 2.5% or we finally crossed into 2.6% for CPI inflation. That's not where inflation is happening. Your stocks are worth more. The market is going up, not because these assets are worth more. It's because the dollar is worth, worth less. And I think that's conceptually what people are starting to grasp. Money is flowing into real estate collectibles, right? We look at baseball cards. You mentioned NBA Top Shot. In December, a Honus Wagner card, which is the most rare, like holy grail of all baseball cards, sold for $3.7 million. In January, a less good version of that card sold for $5.2 million. Right? That's almost a doubling in price of that collectible in less than a month's time span. And the way I sort of describe Bitcoin to people is Bitcoin is the ultimate collector's item. It is the Honus Wagner card of money. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin in circulation. There are 47 million millionaires around the world today. So there's not even enough for every millionaire to own one Bitcoin. Um, so I think, again, as we look at that narrative that's unfolding, it really became a recursive loop, right? It's the macro environment, yes, contributed to people's awareness. But do I believe that people are buying Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation? No, they're buying Bitcoin because in a number go up environment, which is the environment we're in, right? When you print an absolute boatload of money, numbers starts to go up as people start plowing that money into assets. Um, Bitcoin is just another asset that you can plow money into. And as a result, I also think the momentum got sort of uh, took on a life of its own. One of the common misconceptions I want to quickly address, John, is there's this popular narrative that there's a lot of leverage in crypto. And that actually is not true. The antithesis of that is true. There's no leverage in crypto. Today, so is this whole tether thing? Is this whole tether thing now dead now that they settled with the New no. York Attorney General? No, the FUD never dies. I've been through seven years of this. The FUD never dies. The Tether FUD will never die. Bitcoin mining boils the oceans. Quantum computing will break the blockchain. Like we do this shit every cycle. It will never die. It's just that we have better data this time around. Um, but look, at the end of the day, I think what happens is anytime there's momentum in Bitcoin, people want to get leverage, right? Now in crypto, you can't really get leverage. There's no reg T. There's nowhere you can get margin or use your securities as collateral. So the rate to borrow cash in crypto is quite high. It's 12 to 18% annualized. And then the predominant contract that you utilize to obtain exposure to a levered trade is something called a perpetual swap, which is a, a swap contract um, that's, that's repriced on an, a, a daily basis, typically every eight hours. And the cash funding cost of that contract can be as high as 10 to 15% per month. So the cost of having levered exposure to crypto is very, very high. So in periods where we have momentum 
mentioned in the Bitcoin space, we see a lot of people buying these perp swaps and, and obtaining leverage through this contract. But because the funding rate is so high, when that momentum slows down, we see a lot of delevering in that contract, which results consequently in a dip in prices and the market flipping back into backwardation. And so again, I think a lot of what we've seen here is just the Bitcoin market operates this, is operated the same for the last six years, really. These dynamics haven't changed. So we're seeing this momentum becoming recursive. And then whenever we stay range bound, that leverage gets taken off. And then we see more people coming in buying, leverage gets added back on again. We see that momentum run. But again, I think this narrative of like, oh, it's the macro environment that has sovereign wealth funds buying Bitcoin. No, they're buying anything and everything under the sun. Um, we've done research on optimal allocation. We found in a traditional 60-40 portfolio, 4% allocation to Bitcoin that's rebalanced quarterly, sort of the optimal risk-reward approach. Um, happy to share that research with your viewers. But again, you know, I'm certainly not out there telling people, put your entire treasury into Bitcoin. I don't think that's prudent. I don't think that helps with money printer go for any of the things we talked about. Um, so I think a lot of the popular rhetoric, you know, it sounds sexy. Is it prudent or logical? Absolutely not. Would I advocate for that? Absolutely not. Do I think people should be exposed to Bitcoin? Absolutely. But I also think they should be exposed to a wide range of, of different assets. Yeah. And right. I think a lot of the listeners, their their roles are to enter, you know, allocate capital efficiently, be it into their business, be it into their portfolios, their client portfolios. And at this point, it's almost become irresponsible not to put a piece of your of that into Bitcoin and, and other digital assets. And the question really is, do you believe that the dollar will continue to depreciate against Bitcoin? I firmly believe it will. Um, and I think Bitcoin has gone beyond the narrative of just digital gold. Bitcoin is better gold than gold. Bitcoin is better fiat than fiat. You know, fiat now does not incentivize us to save. Saving rates are so incredibly low. It incentivizes us to spend. And actually beyond that, it incentivizes us to go into debt because the rates on debt are so low that you're incentivized to take on more debt. And that's why we are at the, the moment in time that we have never before seen as much debt as we are in. Um, and the market for Bitcoin, you know, is it's a gold and, and fiat and savings market kind of combined. Um, and Bitcoin is teaching us to save. It, it forces you to kind of have the mindset of saving because as you hold Bitcoin and think in terms of Bitcoin, everything around you gets cheaper, be it real right. estate, you know, the fiat dollar, your lunch, you know, everything gets cheaper. Um, and yeah, long time preference. I definitely bought some stuff in 2015 with Bitcoin that I wish I hadn't bought. Yeah. <laughs> People are just like incapable of spending their Bitcoins for this reason, um, you know, and you start to just think in terms of Bitcoin and then you start thinking, you know, what is money? And people argue money is for spending, but I disagree with that. I think money is supposed to hold value long enough so that when you do want to spend it, you can. Um, and that's why I think Bitcoin is so powerful. Yeah, I mean, at dinner last night, I was having this conversation with my wife's grandmother. She's 82 years old, very lucid, but I was trying to explain Bitcoin and digital assets to her because, you know, anytime these things bubble up into the mainstream consciousness. Wait, John, did you orange pill her? I tried, but I tried to just explain the origins of money and how the cavemen, you know, they bartered and then they picked rocks they thought looked nice and they used that as currency. And then Julius Caesar stamped his face on, on coins and just the evolution of money. And she says, well, well, if I send my money from my bank in New York to, to another bank in, in Austin, Texas, you know, they're obviously, they're delivering that money from one bank to the other. I said, well, that's that's not exactly true. We already have digital money, but the, the difference is that digital money can, 20% uh, more of it can be created in one year based on the stroke of a pen from a, a central banker. So there's no reason yeah. why Bitcoin is any different than any other currency or, or a store of value or collectible that's existed throughout history. 
But John, there's something I want to touch on that I think both you and Tegan have just raised that maybe will help bridge us into a bit of a conversation around what's happening in blockchain technology and sort of decentralized finance and, and protocols more broadly. One of the things I think is so interesting to talk about is, um, you know, why why did humans utilize gold? And you articulated it really well. The association of empire and money, right? It was really made by Julius Caesar, who stamped his face on a gold coin. And what gold allowed people to do is transport value and energy, right, um, across vast distances of both space and time, right? If I'm a chicken farmer and I have a chicken, I can transport my chicken maybe 100 miles. But I can transport a gold coin, right, thousands of miles and over millennia. Um, and so I think about this idea of like gold was really a store of value because it allowed us to preserve economic activity and transmute it across space and time, right? And um, over time, what human civilizations did is we created piles of this, this gold, right? And we built citadels and fortresses around these piles of literal shiny rocks. And that's how our our society has developed. And today still, what does a bank do in terms of form and function? You know, BNY Mellon in New York, they have a bad, massive vault in their basement, their stores gold and other assets. Um, you know, it's like very Lord of Lord of uh, the Rings, Gollum right. style, the gold sitting in the, sitting in the basement. Um, and I just think that idea in the 21st century is absolutely preposterous. Like I don't have a vault in my house. If I'm traveling, you know, I'm wearing a tracksuit. I don't have pockets big enough to hold a gold bar. <laughs> I certainly am not traveling around with a briefcase filled with, with gold bars. So I think this idea of, um, you know, so much of what we do in our world has been modernized. I have a supercomputer in my in my pocket that I use on a daily basis. How is it that the basis of how we construct and conceptualize value is still based on shiny gold rocks that we store inside of big marble buildings? Yeah. It, it, just, it doesn't make it, any sense to me. If people talk about fiat, they say, well, Bitcoin doesn't have an army that's there to enforce uh, its credibility. I say, well, have actually, you been it does. On crypto Twitter? Have, it has have the biggest, it has the biggest and most powerful and most obnoxious meme army in the history of the planet uh, protecting its Hell integrity. Yeah, we do. But, yeah but, but look, and I think this is what's so important, right? All, all reality is just belief. Um, and we've memed a new monetary reality into existence. I think if you look at what's happening in equities as well, I think, you know, Elon Musk for, you know, all of his faults has also memed a new reality into existence. I mean, Tesla, if you look at the fundamentals of that business, you know, it's <laughs> not really sure about that. But in terms of narrative, he's done an excellent job memeing this new reality and this perception into existence. And as you alluded to, you know, Bitcoin doesn't have an IR department. We don't have leaders or people who are spokespeople for Bitcoin. What we have is a group of millions of people around the world who really passionately believe in a different version of reality in the future. And we're all working to try to bring that reality into existence. Now, what's really cool about Bitcoin is from an ideological perspective, the umbrella is big enough to accommodate a lot of different viewpoints, right? And you also have all of these different sort of ancillary ecosystems like the Ethereum ecosystem, what Tegan and her team are working on at the graph and, you know, thousands of other networks that people are working on. And they're all sort of recursive and complementary. Um, but what I really would love to talk about a bit more beyond just the asset it's itself is like, what are we doing with building companies? You know, the corporation it is really becoming more powerful than the state. We look at Apple. Apple has a $2 trillion market cap, you know, more than the GDP of most <laughs> countries. We look at companies like MicroStrategy issuing billion-dollar corporate bond at 0%. Like, it's 
just preposterous. Um, but I think one of the things we're also experimenting with is changing the form of corporations and how people engage in economic activity. So I think maybe Tegan could tell us a bit more about, you know, what's happening with protocols and this new way of conceptualizing the way that people build economic value outside of the confines of a corporation with its leaders and mostly male leaders who then become de facto sort of leaders of, of the world. Yeah, absolutely. You know, protocols and and tokens really are kind of this new business model. I think it took a while for individuals to kind of get their minds around SaaS as a new business model. And then Salesforce turned it into a $200, $200 billion industry. Um, and, you know, and now, you know, there's over, you know, 15,000 SaaS companies, but tokens are really the next evolution of the business model. And I think that's going to take folks a lot longer to get their minds around than SaaS did because it's a little bit you know, further out there. Um, and so, you know, it, it now is the opportunity for individuals to kind of get their minds around that new business model, because that's really where the alpha is. Um, and with tokens, you know, you, the way it's the way that you have a sustainable business model when you have kind of a decentralized protocol and also open source technology. Oftentimes in open source technology, you're asking for donations and you're reliant on those donations. With tokens, you can see like Bitcoin and Ethereum, the graph, Chainlink, they've all kind of mastered that art of creating the, the token as the business model and not limiting it with SaaS or with revenue. And it's kind of a radical idea, but that I think is where a lot of the future potential and opportunity lies. And I do think that, you know, this will be, I think we've already started to see it, but this will be probably the largest wealth transfer we see in our lifetime. And there's, you know, so much opportunity ahead. Another thing that I like to speak about is just kind of the future of work and individuals can now work for ideas or protocols as opposed to just centralized companies where kind of the money trickles up to the top. Wall Street gets a bad rap, you know, for being kind of greedy and money hungry, but analysts on Wall Street are not making a ton of money. They're, like with the regulations came, you know, it kind of dried up a lot of that earning potential. And so you have to work your way up from analyst to associate to VP before you can really become like, you know, wealthy within finance. And so this is giving an opportunity for individuals in centralized finance and also in Web2 to come and build in a new ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, you, you saw Goldman Sachs' tone uh, around Bitcoin and digital assets change as soon as Coinbase's uh, <clears throat> private valuation in its direct listing was trading at the same market cap as Goldman Sachs. I think they looked around the room and said, you know, this is an unstoppable train. We better get out of the way uh, and maybe grab on uh, as well. So interesting to see that news uh, this week as well. So let's let's think into the future. Uh, we'll start with Meltem and, and Tegan. I know you have thoughts on this as well, but what does that world look like? We have flying cars tunnels we have web 3.0 <laughs> with a fully for flying cars since i was I like five years old and i haven't gotten it yet so like low-key i'm mad about that <laughs> we, we were promised flying cars and all we got was uh you know this this crazy cryptographic money that that transcends space and time but uh what does web 3.0 look like what does the world look like with a decentralized internet what does investing look like in a world that's fully decentralized Sure. Um, and maybe the way I'd articulate that, John, is um, first of all, what you've just articulated is inconceivable to most people. So I'll go ahead and say, certainly believe this is evolutionary, right? I don't think it happened overnight. I don't think this is a sudden sh shift. I think this is evolutionary and happens over a much longer arc of time. Like humans are notoriously bad at internalizing change. Um, and a lot of that is really a 
a limitation um, based on like how we construct our mental models and our view of the world. So unfortunately, I do think this will be a 5, 10, 15, 20 year sort of arc of time. But as you've alluded to, the macro environment we're living in does accelerate some of that timeline because I think it started to show just the extreme level of institutional dysfunction we have, not just in corporations, but in markets, in our um, governments, in our NGOs, just the institutions that we've constructed are so frail, frankly. Um, and you know, you see that in the United States, the way this pandemic was handled, was just an absolute disaster. It was embarrassing to be an American <laughs> during this pandemic. And it's 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 frightening, quite candidly. Um, I think the other piece is, I think a lot of people have not yet accepted or recognized that we no longer live in a world where the US dollar is the great hegemon. We live in a multipolar currency world. It's just that most people haven't internalized that yet. And the multipolar currency world we live in, right, we have new sort of players emerging. Certainly China with DCP, their digital renminbi project, and just the fact that finance and transactions, like the monetary system in China is entirely digitized. I think that is something most people don't appreciate until they go to China. Like I went there with my little paper renminbi and people were like, please, nobody wants that. Like you need to use the Send app. Send WeChat box. You know. I, I felt like so incompetent because I was there with like my boomer box and they were like, lady, nobody, nobody does that. Nobody anymore. accepts your, your cash. I so felt, what, what yeah, is, I what is China's end game? You know, just to, to go slightly off topic, but you know, they, they have restricted, you know, usage of Bitcoin. Meanwhile, they're one of the largest miners of Bitcoin. They're, they're launching their own central bank digital currency. And they're obviously very intrigued by the space. What is the game they're playing uh, in Bitcoin? Yeah, look, um, I think it's the idea that all empires play, right? It's domination. Um, and, and when I say domination, I don't necessarily mean that in a negative sense. So historic, I come from the energy industry, right? The last really century of human history in terms of conflict and physical conflict um, has been defined by the quest for oil, right? And really the shift to the petrodollar as a result of what happened in 1973, like really what has shaped the modern world, even the way we drew borders after World War II, right? It was predicated on the basis that we were on the hunt for fuel, for oil. The new oil is semiconductors, right? The U.S. is woefully behind when it comes to semiconductor pr production. And silicon, right, is the primary input. Compute and connectivity is the most important resource that nation states will have. And Bitcoin in and of itself is just a giant telecommunications network. Bitcoin is a privately owned, privately operated open source communication network that communicates value. And it's the most secure financial network that we have. It's never been hacked. It's never been taken down. There are billions of dollars of value that go into it. In fact, in December, uh, sorry, in January alone, the Bitcoin network generated $1.36 billion of fees and rewards for people who, who participated in the physical maintenance of that infrastructure. So I think the new frontier we see emerging is this, this digital frontier, digital warfare frontier. And that gets fought on several different fronts. It's value, it's cybersecurity, it's disinformation campaigns, right? Um, and we've seen all of that over the last few years. And so what I think has been really interesting to observe, like there are these different sort of poles that are emerging. There's obviously the US, there's obviously China, Russia is a prominent player. I think we're under estimating the Middle East as well. But on top of that, you start to add in online communities, right? As you alluded to, Bitcoin is an online community of millions of people around the world who fervently believe in and work for and work on 
advocating for making Bitcoin better. Um, Tegan and I just funded an initiative at MIT to fund open source development of the Bitcoin protocol, neutral and free of corporate influence. But look, there's there's a lot of effort and energy that people are in putting into this like online, purely digital instantiation of a, a new type of nation state, which is Bitcoin. Now that sounds a bit far-fetched, but I think what we will start to see is, you know, I don't have just one identity anymore. Yes, my digital ID card, you know, my physical ID card pardon says I'm Melton and I'm a resident of the state of New Hampshire and I'm a citizen of the United States. But online, I can have many different personas and belong to many different communities and have many different identities. And I think, again, this is just part of the natural evolution of how we we live our lives. Like where when I meet someone, I don't talk about where I'm from or where I live anymore. I talk about what I'm into and what communities I'm a part of. I talk about being a Bitcoiner. I talk about, you know, being into sci-fi books. You're so talking think, about your great tracksuits. I mean, this is, it's fire. Not going to lie. <laughs> you have to look good. It's a global pandemic, John. I'm trying to have some fun. I know. Um, I, obviously like, I'm dressed head to toe in wool here. So I don't, I don't have shorts on underneath my jacket, but. You're still, you're still operating, you know, you have your John, the, the financier persona on, but there are many elements of, you know, your persona. So, so I do think giving people more flexibility to choose, right. This idea of exit or voice, right. To choose what communities they want to be a part of is so powerful. And we, as a result of the pandemic, again, we've all spent the last year sitting inside of our houses with nothing to do, but be online. Right. And so I think, again, um, what governments are missing is like ideas are incredibly powerful and incredibly dangerous to the existing power structure. And this idea has just reached like a point of no return. Now, how this idea gets expressed and implemented, there's a lot of different permutations of that. I think you will see nation states and corporations attempt to co-opt the Bitcoin narrative, which we already saw with Facebook's DM, right? Like, I'm saying, right. oh, this is another type of Bitcoin. I'm like, absolutely not. Is that going to work? Is that going to work, DM? Um, I think it. I think it will, and I actually think it might be a very positive catalyst because at the end of the day, you know, three billion people using Facebook now also having a digital wallet that's compatible with not only DM but also with other public open blockchains is potentially a great way to orange pill. 3 billion Facebook users. So I'm supportive. And again, I think it's evolutionary. At the end of the day, you know, the approaches we took in the past of physically shutting people down or shutting off their access to the financial system, how are you going to shut down Bitcoin? Right. Quantum, are you going to find you know, every developer that's ever like, Why, why is code? quantum computing not an existential threat to Bitcoin? Because quantum computing is not just yet at a point where like it could hack quote unquote the blockchain. SHA-256 is highly secure. And also I think people forget like the pace of technological innovation on the cryptography side, like we're talking about robust research academically into next gen cryptography is gonna keep pace with whatever innovations exist in supercomputing, right? It's sort of like um, technology is just a tool, right? And there are people who use it for good and use it for bad. And it's sort of a cat and mouse game. Um, but I think the amount of innovation we see happening in the cryptography space will keep pace with whatever in, uh, innovations we see on the computing side that allow us to potentially break um, really complex types of encryption. All right, Tegan, what's the next step in this decentralized, you know, internet finance world? You know, first of all, why are blockchains and, and distributed ledgers better than just normal databases and, and traditional ways of, of storing technology and, and information? 
And yeah. you know, we've seen the rise of NFT, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, whether it be NBA top shots. So what's the next iteration of all this? Yeah, I mean, I think we're only at the beginning of kind of the decentralized internet, which I call Web3. Um, I think that that is really the future and DeFi is a piece of that. You know, DeFi, you asked, you know, why are blockchains better than databases? Um, and I think the, the big answer is really open data and getting access to that data. For example, in Web2, the centralized space with Facebook, LinkedIn, those APIs are closed. So I can't port LinkedIn data to my own application, nor can I port it to a Crunchbase or, or another application because the APIs are closed. So I can't access that data. In the blockchain space, specifically with the graph, we call them subgraphs, they're open APIs. And so anyone can pull data from those open APIs to their applications, to another application. And this is leading, this is creating a lot of innovation in the space. And it's kind of like, Lego building blocks of innovation that we're seeing. And DeFi is a prime example of that. Because of the transparency within DeFi, there is so much more innovation. And I think, you know, if we look back to the mortgage crisis from, from 2008, if, the, if we had transparency and if the, the banks were able to identify where those mortgage-backed securities lied, who owned them, I don't think that crisis would have been as big. Potentially, we could have prevented that crisis. And DeFi, because you have all these little fires everywhere, it prevents this big, massive fire because of that trans that transparency that's there. And this is leading into NFTs, which are non-fungible tokens that we kind of alluded to earlier, kind of having ownership of digital art and proving that it's an original, just like you have like an original Gucci belt, um, proving that it's an original copy. And so we're seeing a lot of the individuals that made a lot of money in the de decentralized finance space into the NFT space. And then that money is going to artists and creators, bringing a whole new wave of individuals into the crypto space. And I think that will only continue. You know, I think where every application that you have on your iPhone will become decentralized um, and, you know, it will lead into the music space. We have, you know, Audius, we have um, like, you know, different storage systems um, and there's so much more to go. You know, we need a social network we need the Robin Hood of crypto. We need the Bloomberg of crypto, all of which, you know, hasn't arrived yet. And there's so much innovation to happen. Uh, Meltem, the three Ds, uh, digital disinformation distribution. Can you tell me what that means? Yeah, what those sure. are? Yeah. So, so um, my business partners at CoinShares, um, Danny Masters, Russ Newton, John-Marie Mignetti, before they started CoinShares, they ran a commodities fund. Um, my background, you know, is more on the corporate finance, corporate treasury and M&A side. And one of the things they did um, on the commodities side is they built a really robust approach sort of analyzing commodities market based on something they called the three Ds. Um, and so we've done the same thing in the, the crypto space. It's something Danny and I like to work on. We have our, you know, daily chats where we sort of spitball and brainstorm. So what we've arrived at is sort of this framework that sort of um, articulates our approach to, to building coin shares in our business, which we're an asset management firm, but we're also in an investment firm that builds digital infrastructure. So the 3Ds are digital. Everything's becoming digital. And we've already seen that across the finance landscape. It's um, disintermediation, right? So we're removing intermediaries and allowing people to interact directly uh, with uh, one another. And this, the rise of peer-to-peer -peer financial systems, I think, is one example of that. And then the last one that's so critical is distribution. Um, the way that financial products and services are distributed is changing. It used to be that the pipe would go from the Fed 
to a tier one bank, right? To a SIFI, from the SIFI to a smaller bank, and then from smaller bank to service provider and the service provider to the consumer. And along that path, right, maybe three to 5% of the value gets shaved off through fees and whatever else. Now what we have is the ability to distribute tokens and digital assets and value directly to consumers and users, which is something that the graph did, right? They airdrop tokens to people who are participants and sort of bootstrapping the protocol. So this fundamental shift in how we distribute financial products and services, I think is going to lead to a massive amount of um, disintermediation. And so what we really try to do at CoinShares is analyze Data, in a data-driven way, right? We have a large research team and we spend a lot of time doing fundamental research on what's happening here. But as we look at the trend of digitization, which we already saw with fintech, right? That's not a new trend, but it's happening in a much faster way with cryptocurrencies. We see this trend of disintermediation, which now for the first time is possible. I don't need a commercial bank to interact with Bitcoin, which is fun. Like it's mind, it's absolutely mind blowing. If you haven't done it, I highly recommend downloading something like Blue Wallet and sending right. even a one Satoshi lightning transaction, it will absolutely blow your mind. But really the biggest trend and the one that I think should be scariest to financial institutions is distribution. You no longer need a broker or a guy in a suit to distribute financial products. A dog or a cat on the internet, right? And a non-dev building a DeFi protocol can distribute products and services. And because the code is publicly verifiable by anyone who wants to look at it, and because everything is extremely transparent, you no longer have this information asymmetry or this gatekeeping that we see in the traditional financial system. And I think that is so profoundly transformative. People still aren't really grasping it. We're seeing people trying to build products and services around crypto using traditional finance business models, but I don't need to give my Bitcoin to BNY Mellon to lock in a vault. That's not going to keep my Bitcoin any more secure. Um, so I think this idea of distribution fundamentally shifting is one that people are just completely underestimating. And those fees are going to flow elsewhere. And it's not going to be bankers and, and you know fund managers who get those fees. It's going to be developers and people building protocols and open source tools who capitalize on those fees. Like Tegan. So Tegan, what's unique about Hell the Graph yeah, Protocol? <laughs> what, what's unique about the Graph Protocol, how you've built it? She talked about how you, you incentivize you know, early uh, developers who bootstrap the protocol by, by you know, cutting them into uh, the, basically the currency uh, that operates on the Graph Protocol. But what's unique about the way you've built it and the way you've conceptualized it? Yeah, so the graph has the potential to become larger than any layer one blockchain because the graph integrates with every level of the stack. Um, and so you have like the applications on top, they use the graph to index and query their protocol, kind of like what Google does for the web, the graph does for the blockchain. You have all of this great data within the web, but until Google came up with search, you couldn't access that data. Same with the blockchain. There's a lot of wonderful data there, but getting to that data is really difficult and time consuming. And so we abstract, you know, 12 months line of code away from from those developers and allow the developers to easily serve data to their users. Um, but what's great about the graph is it can integrate with every piece of the stack, be it you know the, the layer one blockchains, the layer two blockchains like Optimism Scale. Um, there's many, many different Arbitrum, many different layer twos to help with scaling, which is uh, one of the issues. You know, Ethereum has grown so big and there's so much development on Ethereum that folks are kind of looking to go to other places. And so wherever developers and users go, the graph will be. 
Yeah, obviously, you know, I have a lot of conversations with people in the digital asset space and, and Graph has come up in a number of conversations. So congratulations on what you've built with that. I know there's there's a ton of excitement uh, in the digital asset ecosystem about what, what you've built and what's continuing to be built uh, on that protocol. Uh, mm-hmm. But we could probably go on for another two hours, but we'll wrap it up there for today. Uh, Meltem, Tegan, what's your, your Twitter handles? You guys are very lively on Twitter. How, how do we follow you on Twitter, Meltem and, and Tegan? Sure. I'm at Melt underscore Dem um, and my company's at CoinShares Co. I do have to disclose I am an investor in the Graph Protocol, um, so I'm probably a bit biased. And all of my personal investments, as well as those I made through CoinShares, are disclosed on my website, which is MeltonDemiris.com. I always like to disclose what my interests are, um, so I am a long-term believer in the Graph, and obviously my incentives there are pretty clear. So I just wanted to disclose that since disclosure is a part of traditional finance that I certainly think we should replicate in the crypto space. Absolutely agree. And I'm the Klein Venture on Twitter. You can follow the uh, Graph Protocol at Graph Protocol. And uh, you can follow Edge and Node at Edge and Node. And Meltem, you're my go-to source when, when people start coming at me with the fact that Bitcoin uh, uses all the, is going to use all the world's energy in the next decade and that it's a, a massive suck on, on energy use. You're my go-to resource. I just say, Go go talk to Meltem. Go go follow uh, yeah. Meltem on on Twitter. She'll she'll take we're, care of you. We're putting out yeah. So I have a website. Bitcoin will not boil the ocean. Um, CoinShares has published a lot of research on the use of renewables and Bitcoin mining. We're about to announce a whole slew of investments we've made in this space. But in my view, Bitcoin will actually be the catalyst for an energy revolution, the likes of which we've never seen before. Um, so I'd love to continue talking about that. There are a lot of great people, including Ross Stevens at NYDIG, who've done. Great great work sort of helping evangelize that narrative. And so, you know, the energy industry and the Bitcoin industry in an odd way, like my two loves are coming back together again. And if we want to have an intergalactic, you know, experience as humans and intergalactic existence, we need intergalactic money. That's Bitcoin. We also need energy sources that will allow us to be an intergalactic race. So um, I'm very optimistic about the long-term compatibility between sustainability, energy, and Bitcoin more broadly. So anytime you want to chat, John, I'm your girl. I love it. I love it. And Elon Musk is sort of solving all those problems at one time. He's uh, you know, solving course. the energy revolution piece. He's taking us to Mars. Uh, and he's also creating Starlink, a new, new telecommunications system uh, via SpaceX. And he's got dank memes. He's got dank memes, John. Let's not forget. Yeah, and he has dank memes. Important. That's what it really comes down to. This is a meme war, and, and he has yeah. dank memes. Uh, and so he's winning that battle. But thank you uh, again, Meltem and Tegan, for joining us today here on Salt Talks. It's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you, John. And thank you, everybody who tuned into today's Salt Talk uh, with Meltem Demirs and Tegan Klein. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can access them on our website at salt.org. And you can also watch them all on our YouTube channel called Salt Tube. Uh, we're also on social media at Salt Conference is where we're most active, but we're also on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks, particularly if you have an 82-year-old uh, great-grandmother-in-law who needs to learn about the history of money and uh, why Bitcoin is not boiling the oceans. Please send them to these episodes, uh, th- this series that we do on digital assets. I think it's been really informative for a lot of people. But on behalf of the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here soon.